welcome to episode 20 of Movie Mumble, our monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where we seek to broaden our cinematic horizons. 20 episodes, gentlemen, and many more, actually, because Ooh. of our holiday-themed specials and our guest episodes and whatnot. Yes, sir. So many more, but 20 official episodes. Feels good. Yeah. It's a nice number. Uh, our our podcast is almost old enough to drink. I made the barely legal podcast joke last time, right? Oh. Is that yeah, right? I'm sure you did. For, should we do our 21st podcast drunk? Like, hey, you're fine. What do you mean? Yeah. Like the the previous 20 have been? <laughs> uh, I'm your host, Scott Murray, and I am joined, as always, by my uh, serious and uh, not at all insane comrades in arms, Joel Lewis Howdy. and Tim Gerard. Hello. For those of you unfamiliar with Movie Mumble, it's a monthly podcast where we get together, watch a film, and then talk about it. And that's it. Uh, the goal is to introduce ourselves to new films, genres, themes, just to enrich the experience with each other's company. We take turns picking a film to watch, whether it's one we already know and love or something that's new and unfamiliar, then we watch it together and uh, talk about it, see where the conversation goes. There are no rules about the films we pick. They can be foreign, domestic, new, old, live-action, animated, famous, unknown. They can be anything we want. And uh, the conversation just sort of goes. That means that for some podcasts, we talk about the film most of the time, and for others, we branch out. We talk about production, the context of the film, the industry at large, other movies we've seen. It's We just sort of let it flow, like a movie club that we all hope you'll come be a part of. <laughs> um, we do not make any efforts to withhold spoilers for any films we talk about. We don't guarantee we'll spoil them, you know. We're not going to sit here and walk through every inch of the plot, necessarily. <laughs> not <But> anymore. <laughs> since we've decided to get, be get better summaries. Uh, but we're, we're not, you know, we're not going to withhold anything. So if you're concerned about that sort of thing, please watch the film before you listen to the podcast about it. And at the end of each episode, we announce what we're watching next month, so you can follow along if you'd like. This month, I was our movie selector. <laughs> and I brought I'm so glad this I finally brought this to y'all Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb one of the uh, lengthier titles on Movie Mumble <laughs> I like to refer to it by its full title because I feel like the second title just really encapsulates the absurd nature of the film <laughs> really drives home the sexualization of weaponry <laughs> love the bomb uh, so uh, so we used to, you know, introduce our own films, and now we have the coin flip system. Joel brings us one of the glorious coins out of his collection. Today he brought us a um, gorgeous and shiny half dollar, a bicentennial half yeah, dollar. 1976. Mm -hmm. Kennedy on one side and Independence Hall on the other. Really pretty. The film selector flips the coin. The next person in line to select, which this time is Tim, uh, calls it in the air, heads or tails. And the winner of those two decides who gets to or who has to summarize the film we've just watched. It's always has to. Yeah. Uh, I've had a couple gets to. Here, here's a spoiler, listeners. If I get it, Tim's doing it. If Tim's God. getting it, I'm yeah, doing it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, why do we even do this? <laughs> <laughs> we just like the coin. <laughs> so, all right, you ready to call Tim? Yes. Tails. It is heads. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> Tim, would you please? <laughs> Since you hadn't seen this before, I think yeah, so Joel and I had both seen this before, yeah. and Tim had not. Okay. I, I did it last time, didn't I? I feel like. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and you hadn't more, done it for six episodes. Win more coin tosses. <laughs> yeah. You'll do it less. Get better I at don't have trick coins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so it's basically... There are, there are all these bombers that are just positioned flying around Russia. <laughs> like, oh just God. waiting. <laughs> just waiting to get the call. And then this one... Was he a general? Yeah. I'm not really good general at ranks. Ripper. Yeah, General Ripper. General Jack, Jack D. D. Ripper. Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> he, he decides, like... Or not to, you don't know that he decides, but you know, he sends these these codes out to the bombers, like, oh, you know, use, you know, uh, uh, was it like flight plan R or whatever it was? It's like, and they have all these, you know, you send a certain code, and it means then we open this envelope and it has a certain plan that we have to follow. And it was basically like, this is what you do if, if Russia retaliate, we're in retaliation to being attacked by Russia and the president is unavailable to give the command because only the president is supposed to be able to give the command to like drop these bombs. But if he's unavailable because they bombed Russia, you know, you actually don't find that out till later, that that's like part of why this R was such a big deal was it basically gave this one military guy permission to say, yep, we're, we're, we're bombing it and we don't have to wait for the, the president's okay. So all these planes just start in like, okay, we have all these targets we're just going to bomb the shit out of in Russia. And then, um, oh, and part of his thing was you have to confiscate all the radios from the, 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 the base. You know, we can't have any radios. That's not sketchy at all. So come to find out, um, you know, who, who is he? Was he like a like an exchange student? Yeah, like officer sergeant? exchange yeah. program. From, was it from Paris? No, he's British. He's British. Okay, yeah, British wing commander. He he com- he finds this one radio and he turns it on and music is playing and he's like, "Hey, like, why would they be playing music if Russia's attacking us?" So of course the general like locks the door, locks him in his office, and he's like, "Oh, basically, kind of admits like, yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just doing that. We're doing this. This is what's happening. Like, yeah, we're gonna British just bomb." Officer starts to put two and two together. Yeah, he's like, "Yeah, we're just we're bombing Russia. I decided it." So yeah, then you find out later in the war room that. You know, the president is supposed to be the only one who can say, yes, we're going to bomb this country. But except for this this special R. What is it called? Like Plan R. Plan R. Is, is yeah, because okay. Plan R. It's to deter the Soviets from performing the nuclear first strike on Washington. Right. And then assuming that while we all went around with no command, no president, like chickens without heads, they can just subjugate us. Right. Was we have this deterrence in place that if you do that, all our generals get to launch nuclear strikes. So that won't So work. it's like right. everybody's fucked regardless of if yeah. you cut the head off. Like yeah. That, right. That's It's the... Fuck you in yeah. retaliation. It's the thing that keeps man yeah. in place. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was supposed to be this fail safe, but this one general just decided, no, we're we're doing that. You know, and because kind of, of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because precious, precious bodily fluids. fluids. <laughs> because he came and feels sad about it afterwards. He felt exhausted. <laughs> he says, and his essence, my essence. essence had been taken. This is not a feminist film, <sighs> ladies and germs. It, no. It's just made in the sixties, Cold War era, Kubrick. But no. I mean, well, in, in a sense, it kind of is because it's showing the the frailty of the male ego. That's the thing, oh, yeah. you know. Okay. It's, it's, like, right. it's masculinity, yeah. like it's overcompensation, for right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the it's, whole it's, thing. It's yeah. an allegory for that. That's fair. Yeah, it's like oh, <laughs> my essence has been taken from me. It must be the Russians poisoning us with fluoride. It can't just be that I'm an old man Russians and I, you know, oh god. You know why I only drink distilled water or rainwater and pure grain alcohol? <laughs> they sense my power, but I don't give them my essence. Uh, <laughs> I love it, like uh, Peter Sellers' face as he's doing. He's just like, oh, man. oh, sure, Peter yeah. Sellers was a man. Yeah, 
So anyway, Sarge plays kind of like a, a Captain Biggles type character in the, in that sense. Sorry, Tim, continue. Yeah, so this general well, has gone off and oh, lost yeah. a nuclear strike. So and he also gave the order. So on on their 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 base, he also gave the order. If anyone, if you see anyone within like two hundred yards or whatever. Like, even if they're driving our Jeeps and wearing our wearing uniforms, uniforms, it could be Russian spies. So anyone who gets Again, within 200, just sh- you kill them. Shoot them immediately. That the plan yeah. of, yeah. you know, Washington has been destroyed. There could right. be spies everywhere or confusion. But this is the plan as it was set out when right. we know we still had a government. Yeah. And there is one point where the president tells them, like, you know, try to shut down that base. And there are, you know, Jeepfuls of, of American soldiers going over there. And the people are just like, wow, they look just like, wow, they did a really good job of replicating our yeah, Jeeps. They, so they probably, you know, so it's like this paranoia is, spo- is so, like, embedded that they're, like, believing this, you know, um, uh, uh, this, this propaganda over believing, like, their own eyes, you know? Right. Oh, it must be Russians because that's what my general told me. Okay, let's shoot them all. And there's this huge firefight between two sets of American soldiers against each other. Um, and then I think eventually they oh and so Peter Sellers character that that the 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 British soldier he's like well trying to convince him to get the the command code to cancel this the the, the plan R so in the midst of this he's trying to kind of buddy buddy with him and he's you know it's where he hears a story about the bodily fluids and the essence and all that stuff and I think some of the the his troops on the base like surrender and he kind of goes off into the bathroom and you kind of see where this is going like oh yeah you know splash some water on your face in the back of your neck the door closes you hear a bang he's dead he killed himself so it's like great this is the guy who had the code to cancel this whole thing so um and he ends up looking at all these like scribblings that he had and he was writing like you know peace on earth with a capital p capital o capital e and uh purity of essence and he's like oh i think these letters p-o-e that must be part of the code you know like um so it was kind of like uh he ended up and it's of course this tense thing where this other guy finds him he's like oh i think you're you're a prevert you've been doing prevert things and Finally, the, 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 he gets to call the president and be like, try these codes that are different permutations of these letters. And they show the big map in the war room where all of a sudden the planes start turning around. You see them going back in the opposite direction. They're not going to bomb the shit out of Russia. Um, except for, and I guess Russia ended up, they thought they shot down four of the planes. They only shot down three and damaged one. And the one that's damaged actually didn't receive the code. So they're still, yep, mission as, as usual, just full steam ahead. And... Um, also, in the meantime, you find out that Russia was working on a, uh, um, doomsday, a doomsday device where, you know, if America attacks, it's basically just going to nuke the planet. And the whole idea, and this is one of the things that I feel like encapsulated the whole, like, the nuclear threat is that, you know, I remember someone saying that in one of my history classes is that nuclear weapons are only effective as long as we don't use them. Right. You know, it's, it's the fear of using them. So they were making this doomsday device, and the threat was supposed to be that if we get bombed, we have a doomsday device. Everyone dies, so It'll you better not bomb even us. without humans. Yeah, the right. Entire if there's planet. a computer that will just do it, and if it's tried to be um, uh, um, turned off, like that'll definitely okay. that'll set it off. And there's a great discussion with the Doctor Strangelove, the titular character, the old Nazi scientist that we have. He mentions, yeah, we looked into this idea of a doomsday device, but you know, feasible, not feasible, whatever, but realize the only reason it works is that everybody knows about it so we don't attack you why didn't you tell anybody we were going to we tell were you monday gonna announce it on monday <laughs> this is the actual line yeah oh right 
It's so, funny because the the Nazi ends up getting the Nazi dream at the end is that you get selective breeding of the best the brightest the smartest and the whitest (laughs) and he he, like we're gonna have 10 women to a man and we're gonna rebuild society the way we want to like it it, it's it's interesting sorry yeah well no it's it's and it's funny too because like i feel like like that that kind of mentality clicked for how at the end like he has this like gloved hand that just kind of acts on its own and it keeps yeah trying to you know heil hitler and like it, it was almost like you know like a metaphor for an erection yep. you know, as he's talking about like yeah, oh we, more and we need to have that. ten women for every one man and <laughs> so the, like you know and his hand shoots up yeah. <laughs> but so yeah so this one this one bomber ends up getting through and they can't they lost fuel so they can't get to their original bomb site so they just bomb something else one of the other sites and you know this guy ends up uh, the pilot was trying to fix something in the opening the bomb bay doors he ends up he's sitting on the nuke and it launches with him sitting on it and he's riding it like a horse you know throwing his, his cowboy, you know, cowboy hat between his leg the, yeah the end of all phallic symbols yeah and then he ends up just like you know it, bombing this place and you're like left to kind of be like oh, okay that's it like the doomsday device is going to go off this is it and and then yeah somehow dr strangelove is able to walk and he says mein Führer, i can walk and that's where the movie ends and it's like oh okay so here, here we go the whole the whole film is an absurdist satire of the nuclear proliferation and standoffing of the cold war and it it works so well because it's in so many ways it's real <laughs> like, you know these yeah. these ridiculous multi-layered plans about what can we do if this happens or if that happens or if this person's dead or that. Those were real. You know, not exactly like in the film, but they were very similar. There were whole bits where the Americans get in touch with the Soviets through their ambassador and basically say, here's what happened. They're very upset, you know, and like, we'll tell you where the planes are. You can shoot them down. Like, please, you know, we, right. we know it's bad, but we don't want nuclear war. And then the one general, Turgidson, he goes, what if they're just lying to us? What if they're going to shoot these down, cut a chunk out of our nuclear arsenal, and then retaliate? Like, we can't trust them. Mm. And, like, that paranoia and fear and constant second-guessing just pervades the film. It's really interesting that the laughter comes, it's kind of a nervous laughter, right? Yeah. It's, it's all these absurd kind of scenarios of, like, you can't fight in here, this is yeah. the war room. War room. But it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not ha-ha funny, it's <laughs> Like, uh, we're oh. all going to die, but that was kind of funny. Like, and it, then at it's, the end, the laughter is this sort of acceptance. It's this slightly insane chuckling you get. Yeah, just, as he's <laughs> coming off of the... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> as the end comes at you. Mm. Oh, man. Something I really thought was interesting watching it the second time was the kind of bureaucratic, everyday mundanity things mm-hmm. that you would seem to think would impede the acceleration of bombing, right? Like these little little things built in of like going through paperwork or having two keys or those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They work just as hard to impede stopping the bombings. Like yeah. he has to make the has phone call yeah. and he has to do it collect and he doesn't have enough change and it's all these like little 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 frustrating bureaucratic nonsense things that impede their you ability to stop you things. You shoot that machine and get quarters. That's private property. <laughs> you just <laughs> shot the whole building to shit. Like, it's just these little little subversions of Even just the opening okay. with the woman in the apartment. You know, I'm his secretary. And, like, there's this, this colonel 
who's trying to get through to General Turgidson to tell him that nuclear bombers are on their way to the Soviet right. Union. And, well, he's in the bathroom right now. What can I do for you? He says it's something about an Air Force base. You know, right. Oh, he really doesn't want to take the call. Tell him to call back. Like, they go through that for, you know, eight minutes of finally she says something about attack plan R, and he comes and gets the phone. Right. You know, because the, the colonel can't say to whoever this woman might be, you know, this classified information right. that's only for the general's ears. So he has to find a way to get her to put him on the phone without saying nuclear war is coming. Uh-huh. And just a whole back and forth. But whatever it is, it can wait. No, it can't. <laughs> like, and, and, oh my gosh. That's, that's where the comedy comes through. And a certain amount of, of, you know, humor comes from the reality of the situation. That, and we're all young enough, I think, that we don't remember actual nuclear standoff era Cold War. I mean, I think we're not in a post-Cold War state now. <laughs> I mean, It I, was hard to laugh at this I, now. I, I have to argue that it's not the same thing. I, just because whenever you, you talk to people about that, the, the feeling that the bombs would go off within minutes, that at one point your normal life might be interrupted with, oh, by the way, and then just it was happening is something that I've I think bad things are sometimes on the horizon. They get closer and farther mm-hmm. depending on the political climate, but I've never felt that close to I mean, this is global the, apocalypse. The last couple of years has been the closest I've ever felt to that. But Fair. the yeah, somebody had, I, I don't know if it was from a movie. Somebody had always this historian was saying that the world is always on the brink yeah. of the end. It's but like it never quite gets the particular like four minutes to midnight. Yeah, right, the particular right. specificity about this, the specifics of this absurdity is that to just say. Yes, complete nuclear annihilation. It's something that's just so far away, so out there, so hard to wrap your head around as anything other than fiction, that then when it reached a level of acceptance in every day, it's much like in the film, you get this perfectly calm sort of... The whole conversation between the president and the, and the, the Soviet premier, well, well, I'm very sorry, sir. I can assure you, you're not sorrier than I am about there's this just calm normalness to the apocalypse because what else can there be when it's hanging over your head like that every day? Well, it was funny because that was almost like a courtship call, right? Yeah. I think the, the film operates pretty metaphorically as oh, yeah. sex or bad sex or like... <laughs> well, I mean, the, the opening shot is a refueling truck and it's a very phallic, mm-hmm. interact, very intercourse it's, relationship and yeah. the way it swings afterward, like it, it, it's almost blatant and it's got romantic music. The only thing it's missing is saxophone. Right. Like, so it, it's interesting it's, it's, it's kind of like the president's calling the premiere and it is like this endlessly apologetic, this glad handing cadence. But on the other hand, that's that's the political issue. You, know, you have to make the niceties. No, you for have sure. To not be aggressive. It's no. I think it, exactly. it's, 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 a good it's reality as metaphor without having to sacrifice anything real. Right. <laughs> this really insanity comes in. So it. It, it's, the film takes place simultaneously across the war room in the Pentagon, the the head office in the base where General Ripper has gone nuts yep. and did his orders, and then B-52, one of the bomber crews right. inside. Is it a B fifty two? Yeah, they're yeah. all. We've been using them since the fifties. They're still using them. Um, Great name for the pilot, Slim Pickens, Slim the actor. Pickens, yeah, and uh, you know, so we get these three separate pictures of what's going on and how close one person gets to a solution that is impeded by the others, and et cetera, et cetera, and. It, the three separate plots intertwine really well mm-hmm. in ways that not a lot of other films do. Especially because so many times, lots of other films like to bring them all together at the end 
literally to the same place right. and this is simply impossible because one guy's in Britain and one guy's in uh, in Washington and one's in a bomber over Russia wait who's in Britain? or no I'm sorry you're the base the air base right the Brit is in the Brit is in uh, the air yeah. base right so they can't you know they can't just end up in the same right. place for resolving the film and you get you get certain measures of genuine hilarity you know when when General Ripper is giving his, you know, his little speech about bodily fluids. about bodily fluids, and, and his, you know, Mandrake is realizing just how insane he's right. gone. On the Mandrake side of things, there's this real weight, this heavy, deep-eyed seriousness to, oh my God, he's lost his mind, right. and he's done it in such a way that we might all die. Like, you know, the sequence in this one man. But in the meantime, he's giving this ridiculous spiel about Russia's bodily fluids and right. essence that's just laughable mm -hmm. it's it's any any stand-up routine would love to give that spiel you know about fluoride in the water and and so you get this great little marriage of the the what else can you do but laugh when this is our reality type of humor and then little pinches of just genuinely funny humor right i i think sellers is pretty much the heat like this this film is a master class in the, the range of peter sellers oh, as yeah. an actor because he's he's he great plays the nazi scientist dr strangelove yeah he plays the president who's in the same room with dr strangelove and he plays group captain mandrake trapped in the office with the lunatic general ripper and they're so wildly different and i Tim had said he, he didn't realize that he played the president the yeah, first like time i thought the president looked familiar right i was just like who is that guy? Yeah. That's the thing. Watching through it the first time, I didn't know any those three characters were the same. And then I heard it was like, yeah, that's that's Pink Panther guys. Like, wait, what? Like he played all three. He he did a, a nutty professor like with that. It was mm -hmm. great. And his president is great, and it's such a great con contrast to Mandrake because mm -hmm. he's very even in how he delivers stuff. It's just so such a dynamic performance in all those different roles because mm -hmm. he's, he's kind of slightly on edge and trying not to upset Ripper as Mandrake he's, right. he's playing the kind of comically inept president who's trying to figure these things out and he's calling over to the Soviets and doing that like glad handing thing yeah. and then he's the Nazi caricature but that role is almost the best of them because of the physicality of that character yeah. and using the arm as this dead weight and having to twist his body in a certain way. And like, the way that nobody there... We're all so worried about the Soviets and the nukes that we have this literal Nazi right. who we brought on to help us with science mm -hmm. and no one bats an eye. Right. You know, even when he loses control of his arm and puts the salute up right. and then pulls it back down, no, they're just listening to what he's saying, right. which... You know, a little bit more of the, the sudden, how sudden the shift was mm. post-war to new enemy, all the enemy doesn't matter anymore. Right. I've always wanted to study that a bit, um, a bit more detail, post-war Germany and our relationship with it, because I studied post-war Japan and the American occupation. Right. And there was this real quick turnaround from let's wipe out the old identity, build a new national identity as allies because of the threat of the Soviets and civil war in China. And they recognized this need, the geographic need for a military presence in the place, but also the need for a friendly nation. And there's this almost whiplash-inducing reversal of 
you know, will pin the blame on the government of the time and call the people victims who were led astray by this awful government and then work together to build a new country, which, I mean, you know, post-nuclear strike well. Japan also influences that a huge sure. amount. And I mean, that worked very well. We're still on very close terms, et cetera, et cetera, but it... Whether pop you positive know, or otherwise. Right. But it's, you know, it's a great representation of just how sudden was this, that war's over, next war, go. Like, yeah. immediate, just turn around. I'd love to see that in more detail with regard to Germany. You know, because some of the German scientists and people we brought onto our our teams and into our government were had had fled Germany mm-hmm. before the war. Some of them weren't fans of the Nazis to begin with and had been forced to work with them or just kind of would shrug and work with them. But, I, you know, I, I don't know enough, but I know there was always concern that some of them were genuinely rooting for their government through that whole thing. Right. And then just sort of turned around and went, okay, well, you're the new power here. And that we were also worried about the Soviets. We didn't give too close a look. And that's, that's Strangelove's whole purpose in the film, mm. you know, to be that here we are all worrying about this crisis of our own making. When the old crisis isn't even resolved, it's sitting in our war room. <laughs> Looking at the big board. <laughs> See, it's, it's also like interesting talking about on to the next one. Because that's, that's exactly where um, the, George C. Scott's character, Tur- Turgidson. Turgidson. These names are just so... <laughs> like General Buck Turgidson. Right, Bucky. And he, he, his, his next thing is like, well, if we're in a cave for 100 years, we don't have any missiles, they could be in a cave for 100 years and use some of their missiles against us. We can't have a mind yet. A mind like, shaft gap. Like, it, it, it's just so... You haven't even learned the lesson that has just fucked everything for you. Yeah. And it's just so interesting. I mean, that, that character is a perfect encapsulation of, like, false masculinity. Of like yeah. mm-hmm. this false uh, firm front, like, and to to cast George C. Scott, who would later play Patton, yeah. like perfect cast. That's like almost prophetic the way that he's, he's this sixties archetype of like the man's man. I think in comedians and cars drink, drinking coffee, Seinfeld and Alec Baldwin talk about George C. Scott as the man, the the right. cigar smoking sixties archetype. And there's a apparently. And I just just from loose internet sources, yeah. and I wasn't there. That General George Scott wanted to play that role much straighter, and Less Kubrick comical. had to basically trick him into it by having him do practice takes where he hams <laughs> the role up. That's just, a very Kubrick thing. Like. And that let's was try the, one sentence. Those takes he made. used, and yeah. apparently Scott was not happy about right. of being tricked into that. Well, I mean, he's a, he's a great actor, and a huge amount of gravitas from that, and I think even playing that character straight would have made it more sinister. Because mm-hmm. the things that he's suggesting, even in a calm voice, is like, this This guy's fucked. Like, yeah. if this is the methodology and that we're using... it's that hamming it up that gives it the absurdist comedy. It allows it to be funny. Yeah. Without That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. <laughs> he's There's so one point wonderful. that he backs up and falls, and I'm, I cannot I wonder, believe that I that wonder. was scripted. Because I don't imagine George C. Scott... It's one of the like, hammier shots in the whole film, right. too, when he tumbles and comes up and points at the big board. Right. <laughs> He's talking about, they're going to see our big board right. full of information. <laughs> uh. So one of, the, one of the things that I thought of, and it was funny because, and I don't know if you guys know, it, I, I tried quickly Googling this to see if I found anything really quickly, but... I remember, like when I was younger, seeing the title. Like I always thought it was Strange Glove, 
Because <laughs> I see pictures of him wearing a glove, and then I was like, is it supposed to be some sort of like like um, uh, what's it, anagram? Where like you know, and I was trying to like take the okay. If you take glove out of the word, like are the letters left over? Is there any significance to that? Because like I don't know. I just is it is it my own brains need to make connections? Where yeah, the letters of glove are in his name, and he's wearing a glove. Is there something left over where it's actually like, like it, and, and you know how we've been talking about the ridiculous names right. that are in all these? Is there supposed to be some significance to the names name Strange Love? Like that? Well, it's also like it's a the, chosen name, right? Because he changed it after the war. I didn't catch what his German name was. I did not either. Because I expected it to be something funny too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know about. It is funny that he has a strange glove in addition to being strange love. <laughs> I don't know. The naming conventions in this are just hilarious. Like the yeah, the okay. Air Force Base or the Air uh, Base is that's not a, that's not like a, Goebbelson or something. German yeah. responds that the old name was Mer- Oh my god. Merkwürdiglieb. Mer- just strange love but in German. Oh okay. Which I guess is the joke. Huh. He changed it without changing right. it. M E R K W U with an umlaut R D I G L I E B E. Oh dear lord. I recognize L I E B E as love. Right. Lieb. Right. Lieb. I guess the rest is Schliebedish. I'm loving it. <laughs> McDonald's. <laughs> Where you can get beer in Germany. But uh, I guess that's just a side joke. You gotcha. know? Another funny. Yeah, I don't know. Joke. That That's an interesting. Surrealist, like. <laughs> well, I wonder. Part of it too is like you know, it, it, and then again, kind of ro- running with the whole like, like sexual undertones or overtones. I don't know what you know. I guess how there's obvious tones they all are. over. But like you know, the idea of like a condom being a glove. So like right. he's wearing, Velvet. and that's the hand that keeps like shooting As up. At, you yeah. know, a, you know. So so the the strange love, you know, idea of it. You know, and how he finally stands up at the end. <laughs> Yeah, it's made his whole body erect. Mind your, I can walk. <laughs> that's it. End of film. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Oh. I just I, I don't know. I the thing I keep coming back to is just how wonderful a satire this is. How precise, you know, and yeah, no, how it's... it achieves comedy without leaving reality. Without right. losing sight of the darkness and the horror of what's happening. See, the other thing about it, it's not quite a Mel Brooks satire, no. which is Mel Brooks making Mel Brooks jokes in space or in the Wild West or in Robin Hood. Like all the like all of the writing of that man is in those. Like the jokes aren't period specific, really. Mm-hmm. Whereas in in this, it seems like those don't tend to take you out of the experience. The jokes are happening in that world. Right. Yeah. I don't know. The naming convention is about the most ham-fisted part of it, but I didn't dislike it. I mean, Colonel Bat Guano. Yeah. Is is a great name. <laughs> if that is your real name. Bat shit. Yeah. Yeah. That it was so distracting seeing him in anything. That actor, I, Win, I can't remember his first name, but he's he's the villain in all of the Love Bug movies. And he plays the same character in the absent-minded professor, so like that's a shared universe. It's Flubber. Yeah. And <laughs> I think his name's—I uh, don't remember what his name is—but he's also in like a Jerry Lewis film where he plays like a studio exec. Like if, I've seen that guy in that mustache in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. So anytime I've seen him, like Herbie, it's funny. But he's Colonel Batshit in this. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it's what's also really remarkable about the plot, this really tightly woven, is how close things come to good and bad yeah. so many times. Exactly. You know, so many times. We get the 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 death of Ripper comes right at the wrong moment, and the figure out of the code comes right at the wrong moment. Everything good and bad happens just too early or too late to be good or bad. You know, they finally get the code to recall the bombers. After the bomber we're, that we're watching was damaged and his radio was broken. Yeah. So he didn't get the code, you know. Well, that's, that's what's like, fucked up, too. You're, you're almost though, cheering for them to be shot out of the sky. Yeah, because yeah. minutes you before know? that, exactly. Because that's know? the only chance is yeah. if they shoot down all the bombers, the world won't end. Right. So when the missile is coming, you're hoping they're all going to die. And they don't. And then they get the codes, and you're like, okay, well, it worked out. But then because they didn't die, the radio's broken, and they can't get the right. Ah, and everything just piles on. That's the thing. They, they make... As silly as they are, in response to this threat, they make all the right decisions, right? Yeah. They try to get to the guy with the codes. They contact the, the Russian government and say, these are where they are. Here's happening. where they're heading. They did not order this. Shoot them down if they you need to. Of course there are guys, and we'd love to get them back, this, but we can't. But yeah. yeah. Like, and they sent, because that was the thing. It's like, couldn't they just shoot them down with a missile? And then they sent missiles. Yeah. Like, and, and okay, and why can't they send the another one? Because they can't gain altitude. So now they're, they're below radar coverage. Right. So and then uh, it's like okay, we know where their target where the target is, but because they're damaged, they're leaking fuel, so they have to right. just pick a knockout of opportunity. And that's random. probably that's the only kind of like niggling doubt I have about it is because imagine in that scenario, like okay, if they're damaged and they're leaking fuel, where's the closest right. target? And that's one thing they could have done more. But I, who's to say if that would have had any effect? Like that's the yeah. one step they missed. Wait, don't they? I thought that's what they no, do. That the government might have thought the same thing in the war room. Oh, they oh, might right, have right. said, "Well, if the plane gotcha. is damaged and that's why it's not on radar anymore, maybe they can't make it to their first time." Oh, right. Yeah. But just it didn't occur to anybody. Right. Maybe yeah. because they're all the generals and they're not the pilots, and that's they're not familiar, right. intimately familiar with those protocols. Yeah, time Buck. Well, they was, were too happy was, to celebrating. Yeah. I love the pieces our profession. As the motto of the, the bomber squadron, yeah, that particular squadron, and there's that great shot of the army, you know, in the fierce gunfight yep. on the runway, Showcasing and there's that big sign over it. that says, "You know, peace is our profession." And yeah. here are two groups of American troops slaughtering each other over nuclear annihilation. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Which again, right there, was a, you know, relation to the time, this this sort of PR move of well, it's peacekeeping. Right. You know, this escalation will keep the peace, mm-hmm. will prevent war from breaking out, which itself is a bit of an absurdity to say. Yeah. I mean, that's what Emperor yeah. Palpatine wants, to be in control of everything <laughs> and be the strongest force so that there will be peace. Uh-huh. <laughs> what if they don't agree? Someone should make them. <laughs> Hate sand gets everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty Pelican. <laughs> Tim, I want you to do like a creepy soundtrack for those scenes. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about Kubrick a bit. Because this is a Kubrick film. It is. And it's, I love it. Mm. And it's the second Kubrick film we've had on the podcast. The first being The Shining, which, which falls flat for me. I won't say hated. I won't say hated. I wasn't grabbed. I shrugged. You know, it didn't keep my attention. But as I've mentioned... It's beautifully made. Right. You know, I'm not, not going to call it bad. See, I was really surprised to find that this is not his first... Um, Major work, if yeah, you will. Because Spartacus and Lolita are right before this. And I, what about uh, Paths of Glory? That is before. Is that earlier as well? Yeah. yeah. And I think... So, and yeah. 
60s were into color film, so he did oh, yeah. deliberately chose to do this in black and white. Apparently aping German expressionism in a few ways. We didn't even talk about that. The glove. <laughs> the idea of the hand is that, that maniacal metropolis actor. Yeah. The, the oh, I'm just so yeah, glad yeah. to see your Rock face wine. light up when I said that. Yeah. Like, cause I, the claw, it's there. It's expressionist. Yeah. That makes claw. sense. That's really interesting, actually, yeah. now that I'm... But, but the, what's interesting is at that time, that part of the film would have been omitted. Oh, of, from Metropolis. Yeah. Yeah. So that connection is just in my head, but it's still cool. Um, yeah, so... Well, yeah. I mean, Fritz Long came to the U.S. and continued to make films, That's so fair. maybe he and Kubrick crossed paths somewhere. Yeah. Also, I think I've heard that referenced in, uh, or uh, in terms of opera, like that being yeah. like you know the base villain is always making right. the claw the or like the gestures. tenor. You know, the I think I've uh, maybe it's the tenor. Cause I feel like I've heard I've heard it referred to as the tenor claw or something That's like that. Cool. That when they're singing, so I mean that could have been something that's even older than Metropolis right. and kind of, you know, pervaded all of that stuff and been seen in other, you know, for any of these people. I mean, I would like to think that Kubrick, Kubrick had seen an opera at, at some point yeah. and like, cause I mean, he definitely has a very operatic scope to his films. Yeah. So like it could have kind of both came from the same source, you know, and ended up in different directions, even though he wasn't directly referencing Metropolis, they could have both been referencing some of the same stuff. You know, I have to say like, in terms of like the me mechanization of war and the way he captures that, that's really effective. I was a little distracted by like the clearly blue screened and model of the airplane. Yeah, there's the certain plane in the background. And I it's think kind that's of, a product of the time. I, it definitely yeah. is, and you kind of you see it juxtaposed with like actual footage from a cockpit and those yeah. those things. And it's I, I as real I was footage in the opening credits. Right, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. And yeah. what I'm saying is, as I was watching this thing. This much to pissed Kubrick off. Yeah. To, like he's like that's clearly not real and it doesn't look real. Uh. Like this perfectionist yeah. man who's like notorious for, like, yeah. smashing they, round pegs into square holes <laughs> about things. Like they hired him to fake the moon landing, but he would accept nothing less than on on location filming. Exactly. And, and so we went to the moon. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> so that was just a really interesting. Like in. I was able to like distance myself, but every time it came up, it's like Kubrick must have hated the fact that this yeah. doesn't look real. Like yeah. it, it just that would have driven him crazy. So sure. were, I mean, were there reasons why they had to to use a model as opposed to either stock footage or just filming? Like well, the bomber, firstly, you know I mean? cost and simplicity. You can put a screen up and a model in a set and film that for one day, every possible way you could ever want to, and have enough footage to make eight films. As and opposed this is, to trying to film real aircraft. But, but I mean, they had, is, that's what we were saying. Like, they had the real footage of the of it being fueled. So they I did not know. have any cooperation from the Air Force during this film. Oh, almost okay. at all. So if they wanted to, like, they, they could use stock footage I'm if honestly, they had it, yeah, I'm yeah. more curious as to how the hell they got that refueling footage. Right. Yeah. Is it a B-52 that's being refueled? Absolutely. Too? Is it? Oh, yeah. See, yeah, nothing else looks like it. That's what was what there was at the time. Gotcha. Um, and I mean, this is the height of the Cold War. This film came out as this was... A very real commentary yeah. of actual events. So, I could see where the Air Force is like, we're not having you make a mockery In of fact, this right now. One of the myths surrounding this film, Legends, is that so the B fifty two, which was pretty state of the art for the time, only introduced in the fifties, um, was very top secret in its interior. Exterior, I mean, sure, pictures, air shows, you know whatever. It looks it's like. around. So the film crew had to take uh, footage of the old the B twenty nine. The old Super Fortress, the nuclear bomber from World War II, the uh -huh. big one, which was just the most recent bomber they had. For the interior, 
and match its shape so that it would fit in the exterior shape of a B-52. Interesting. And just make their own bomber cockpit. And apparently, they did so well, there was some concern from the government that they had got their hands on classified B-52 oh, information. Nice. Um, again, I one of the legends. I don't know how much truth there is. But <laughs> Well, that would have been something like Kubrick's, like, I want this as close to what it could be. Yeah. Does it make yeah. sense for this to be here? Mm-hmm. You know? That, right. There you go. It's it's interesting. I always think of Kubrick's films as being on a grander scale than this. this feels very intimate, though it yeah. is because we're in the cockpit. We're in the biggest room is the war room, but it's this echoey it's chamber and it's, yeah. it's empty space. And then you kind of have the claustrophobia of the air base where you're in this specific the room. office that he's been locked into. For some reason, like even the Stanley Hotel feels massive. Mm-hmm. Right, and labyrinthine that just right. goes on forever. And then you play with and hallways and extra rooms. Right. And what wing of the hotel is this now? And here you're playing with nuclear annihilation, and, and it's in small, a, a tiny space. And that's even. Uh, I mean, 2001 is obviously in space. Everything is about empty space in this huge scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, even um, Tom Cruise. Eyes wide shut when they're in the the porno. Mansion. It's huge. Yeah. Right, like this idea of this mansion, massive right? like forgetting scale. Forgetting Kubrick movie. Right. Oh, There's man. one he does in natural lighting, right, too? I haven't seen that one. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut, but I do know it's an Orchie film, and I know Tom Cruise is in it. Yeah. It's it's just interesting, because it, it also feels, that's why I was mistakenly thinking this was earlier, because the mm-hmm. scale is so reduced, and it's so intimate. Yeah, you figured it would be an earlier work. Yeah. Right. It just, it, no. it's interesting. It was on purpose, yeah. And it's interesting to watch him cast and direct comedic performances. Yeah. Because I don't know that there's much comedy in any of the stuff that I... A lot of in his little work, yeah. His other I, stuff. I've only seen The Shining and, and Strangelove, but my impressions of this other work, yeah, right. is that it's more serious. I mean, there's, very, there's no humor in 2001. Maybe there's a little... In Clockwork Orange, I'd argue... Yeah, yeah, but that's more of a nihilism. Yeah, it, yeah, there's there's nihilism in it. Yeah, and but the people who are laughing and making the jokes are so abhorrent that right. it's, it's not the audience laughing with yeah. them so much as it's another nervous laughter situation. Exactly. I guess. But that's an interest. I always forget about Clockwork too. That's I haven't seen that in ages. But the idea that you have a talent like Peter Seller. Yeah. And he just lets him do his thing and it's it's perfect like I, I I love his portrayal of all three of those characters I think yeah. it's really effective the closest well, thing to a caricature is strange love but it's it's just too close to reality right. to be comfortable yeah it's it would be interesting to see how that went because mm-hmm. with comedic timing and like improv or those kinds of things I don't know if those would be nurtured under directorial management of Kubrick. Kubrick yeah. Like I don't think he ever wants anything to be random. He doesn't want the moment to produce anything. He wants to set up a specific moment, and if it doesn't get captured, he's there for forty-seven takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm very interested to see because these are the only two Kubrick films I've seen. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily looking for an answer now here from either of you, but just that I'm interested to watch more of his other films now, and see where they each go and how I feel about them all and whether it's something about his earlier work because mm-hmm. Strange Love isn't early early but, it but is it's still early. first half you know that appeals to me that changed as he as he continued to make films 
or if it's something about Doctor Strangelove in particular, the comedic element, or, you know, what it is that that makes me totally agree about Doctor Strangelove being one of the pillars of 20th century film, and then just left me bored during The Shining, you know, even though they were from the same visionary and very controlling director. So I'm excited to see more of that, to see more of his films and develop more of a palette for that. Another thing about this is like it didn't feel Kubrick-esque and there's no real tableaus. Because you get this huge, you, you see the elevator, right? And the blood coming out of mm. it, right, in The Shining. You have the, you have Howl and you have the rotating spaceship and the obelisk, like these specific images that stick with you as these tableaus that he plays with mm. and sets up. And there's, I mean, the closest thing to that, and it's not, maybe it's just not subtle in this, where it's writing the bomb down, right? This I would have argued the war room. We get these wide shots every so often. Yeah, but I'm not focused on it. Like they're they're not what's going on. It's like the inner relationship of those people that is taking away from that. Because I think that that set's mostly empty. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I think it yeah. suffers from being black and white, and the echoey. Like you feel the atmosphere is different in there. Yeah, but I'm not visually captivated by anything other than the figures in that room and maybe that's just me but I didn't think of it on a tableau sense you know the the idea if you see the Stanley Hotel or you see those big open spaces and like the architecture is as much about the place as the people interacting in it maybe the actual map itself is maybe the closest thing because there is right. focus on that the big board yeah, so right. yeah the big board <laughs> which general and the line's is. getting closer and the yeah, line's going so. further and the mm-hmm. line's getting closer mm-hmm. like yeah I think that's another reason I, I keep thinking of it as early early is because the, the Kubrickisms that I've You've associated with, with it style are just hard present yeah I'm not seeing not that I don't enjoy this film it was no, it was a hard not. watch this time because of how similar it felt to modern day for me. Right. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it almost seems like it's it's one of those where that that shot of the the war room and the big board, like, hey, I should play with these big visual, you know, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but yeah, like like the tableau, but like what like that idea. It almost seems like that came about because yeah, we need a war room, we need a big room with a big map. And then that visual thing that was created from the necessity of the story led to, hey, is there a way I can take this concept and carry it into my other mm-hmm. films? And maybe that's what led to that being a staple of his other works, you know? I'm also curious, because Spartacus is an epic, right? It's it's a cast of thousands, isn't it? Well, I mean, how long is it? <laughs> what do you mean? An epic is typically a length. Oh, Traditionally I thought- is a length statement. Yeah. What, nowadays, what am I it, describing with I mean, a cast of that, like a Ben Hur, like a so nowadays sword it, and sandals? It has grown to encompass just the general size of the production. That's a, the way I was force. using it, right? Yeah. But traditionally, it's to do with length. Okay, but the way I'm using it is mm. the the cast and the scale. Sure. And the idea that Spartacus was a huge production. At least I no, haven't seen sure. it. I think it is in scale pretty big. So to go from this cast of thousands that you're manipulating down to something as intimate as a cockpit and an office, I think that's also an interesting step, too, because it's this, you get this big thing to play with and you pull it back. I mean, Paths of Glory is a World War I film, right? So the idea of the entrenched 
and this long that's the one with the long shot long down the track right so line. he's thinking in these big scales and he's oh, using these beautiful. big sets so, so I'm wondering did he what, do Lolita before this yeah. as well so but I don't know that? how intimate that I mean I, it's I train car it all. it's also like a really creepy storyline I don't like supporting um because it's about infatuation with somebody who's underage, mm -hmm. and it's it's gross. Um, so I, I don't know how intimate that film is. I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, yeah, me neither. I'm just wondering what made it more interior, smaller scale, intimate in Strange Love before moving on to these more mm -hmm. lavish, lavish might not be the right, but yeah. bigger productions. Grand. Yeah. It could have just been the need for contrast, you know. That's true. Like, yeah. oh man, like I did this big ass thing. I want to do something more, you know, more, yeah, more intimate, more like, you know, how can we focus on a few characters doing doing a job together instead of an army, you know, and, and right. kind of the, you know, functioning as a as a mass, you know, instead like just get to these. You know the minutia of performances within. I guess that that lends itself to comedy too, right? It's hard to have the funniest mm. stormtrooper. <laughs> you know, like the, I, I mean, you can, but like the idea of comedy has to be more about the short gags, small interactions with people, and mm -hmm. like, yeah, the fine detail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like sifting through his change. I don't have right. enough money. <laughs> Can you make it a collect call? Probably won't accept it. <laughs> St station to station. So interesting how I know what collect call means. Right. Station to station is is gobbledygook to me. Yeah. Like I don't understand how that works. And the idea that you put in a quarter to make the connection to the operator, and then they tell you how much more you have to pay to continue in the direction. That's yeah. so interesting See, and so strange. It's in a payphone, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because in the phone you've already hooked up. You can get to the operator. Right. You get charged from there, and it's on your bill. You know, mm -hmm. in the month. I don't know that I've ever used a payphone. I have. Yes. I have. It's maybe twice, ever. <laughs> There's very few of them left anymore, too. Like one thing that's weird too is apparently, and I remember this kind of playing itself out. My my cousin had called me from his school on a payphone that was at the school. And I was on, like, my parents' phone, and someone was telling him, like, yeah, like, you can't hang up a payphone until the other person... And he went and, like, hit the, like, the, whatever the, you know, where you would hang up the yeah. phone, and it went dead, and then let go, and it came back. Like, the call wouldn't end until I hung up my phone. So you can, like, hang up the payphone, and it won't end the call. What the fuck? Yeah, and it was just... And he was like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, no, what? look, he's, he's still there. And I was like, Whoa. yeah, like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's weird. So like, Jeez. <laughs> and I don't know if part of that has to do with the fact that like, well, if you paid for it, you know, it gets to just keep going. I don't know. Yeah, but but that was just a weird, quirky thing that I learned that way. I, I don't like, know oh, how okay. anything works. You know what it was? It was airports. We used airport payphones a few times. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. A huge bank of them. Yeah, when we travel, I think of the scene calling. in Home Alone where they get off the the uh, <laughs> yeah. plane in France and run to the. And we call my dad or my aunt or whoever we were meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, or my grandma just like, yeah, we're in the airport. Our flight's still on time, so we'll be landing at your airport in you know this many hours. And as I got older, mom would let me dial it for her or what have you. I, and I made a few handful of close calls huh. before handing off to my parent. <laughs> but uh, 
I don't even yeah. call, I don't call anybody when I land somewhere. It's I like mean, I'll get home. I'm gonna. I, I called a lift to come and pick. I mean, you know, now like, I, I text. You know, when I'm right. going to see mom for hey. Thanksgiving, yeah. I'll be at my gate. Go. I'm at gate. Plane still on time. We'll let you know if something changes. Right. Bing. Text, and that's it. You know, because she's picking me up at the airport. And oh, we've been delayed. New new arrival time is this. You know, right. which I text more often than not lately. And that's uh, it. Yeah. But yeah, when I'm coming back to Denver. Um, if I'm again, if someone's meeting me, sure, I'll text them. Right. But if not, no, get on the train, get a lift, whatever. Yeah, uh, and even then, the texting is just so much more convenient than right. the non-cell phone. You know, but you don't have to worry about like connectivity issues. Yeah, they had to issues. be at home yeah. to to reach me, right? For me to reach them, and vice versa. Right. I had to be at a payphone. They couldn't call me. I had to call from whatever airport I was in. You know, God, how did anybody do anything <laughs> without? That instantaneous And what's really neat is that the proliferation of cell phones is so recent that there are films that feel otherwise perfectly modern. Yeah, except for... And there's no cell phone. Yeah. And they're, they're slowly becoming less and less modern now with smartphones and, right. you know, etc. But even uh, watching Casino Royale and he had a regular cell phone. Right. Bond had a regular <laughs> cell phone. You know. That was uh, shocking to me because I thought of that as one of Daniel Craig's modern films that they're right. still making now oh well, yeah of course smartphones nope <laughs> not when he made that <laughs> there's another uh, funny payphone st- not funny funny but like um, <laughs> after my undergrad I went on a cruise with uh, with uh, one of my friends and two of his friends and uh, the the cruise left from Florida and then it was it stopped at like three different islands and the first one we stopped in was Puerto Rico and like I think I had a cell phone at the point, but because we were out of the country, like I don't know what this is gonna mean for like, you know, any sort of international call bills on my cell phone. And this was before like plan this is when you had minutes. Yeah. Um, in quotes. Yeah, that's you still missed a that thing. Listening. I mean that's I mean you <laughs> but can like, but like but most, it's not normal anymore. Right, right. You know. But that was like and I think that was the thing is like nowadays, like sure, someone who uses a cell phone twice a month might have a phone plan with minutes yeah. as opposed to most people who are just on their phone all the time. But back then, like I don't, I don't think unlimited minutes was even a thing yet. It was like nights and weekends free, but we'll charge you out of the ass, you know, for any calls during the day. Yeah. Um, so what it was was I was like, well, when I, you know, to let my parents know that I was there safe, it was kind of like I don't know if you remember that commercial with like, oh, the phone charges where the Bob we ought a baby eats a boy. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, commercial. Call, like so. When yeah, you, when call, you do collect. a collect call, you know, you get to the op- you get to the, and this is oh, you say who's calling post operator days, right. so it's a machine, right? State your name. You know, you have a collect call from Scott, but that becomes from Mom picked me up at school. You know, and then you don't have to actually pay for I it. See. You know, no gotcha. one has to pay for the collect call either way. Gotcha. And Tim is referencing a particular TV commercial. So, and that was pretty much what my that? story was: is I had to do that once. Gotcha. <laughs> Make your, yeah, your collect call is from. Hey, made to the island. Okay, we'll call you later. Bye. You know, Bob had a baby. It's a boy. Right. <laughs> Ma had a baby. It's a boy. I got it. <laughs> exactly. Whereas, you know, with an operator, which we see in the Kubrick film, you know, the operator asks, you know, who should I say is calling? Right. <laughs> and you're going to say your name. But as we moved on to the machines, we found ways around them. So. It's just funny, the idea of, like, calling an operator to connect you with the Pentagon. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, you know, no, I am serious. Yes, connect me with the president. <laughs> right now. That even, even that technology is so impressive in so many ways. The dialing used different pitches 
because it was all basically conversion of sound to wire vibration right. to give computer commands. Mm -hmm. And that's why that, that one guy was able to get the whistles out of the Captain Crunch box. And like they would make the right pitch and tone to make oh, phones do right, things. Right, 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 right. Because it was just sound to vibration. It would, even that's just crazy to think about. And then we went to the moon on that stuff yep. in 1969, you know? I haven't figured out how to get back since. <laughs> yeah, who is it was saying that the, the, the technology that was in the, the shuttle was the same technology that's in like a basic calculator or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Circuitry-wise and like... Your smartphone has more wise. computing power than the Apollo missions all put together, basically. That's fucking scary. Yeah. <laughs> Although, some of it's a matter of... of I, I'm missing the, the phrase I need, but of apples to oranges, that the computing was much more physical, much more mechanical, much less one device that provides information than one automated physical system that performs a task. Right. You know? Different kind of computing. Does that make sense at all? I think the main thing is just, like, when funding stops at a certain point, you're not, the technology of what you've built is not gradually increasing as the smartphone tech is or the things that are getting... Right. Like, NASA has not been trying to send people to the moon since, what, like, the 80s? Is that when the kind of I Apollo, Apollo missions stopped? stopped but, but, like, we haven't been trying to get back. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. Yeah it's, yeah, it's almost the implication that's that's worse. That, like, you know, not that, oh, the technology then was nowhere near what the technology now is. It's what we're choosing to focus our technology now <laughs> on. You're like, I want to be able to stream faster. Right. Fuck space. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where Kubrick went next with 2001. Mm -hmm. Was that the next film? I, I might be misremembering. I think right after power. this one was... Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the next one was Space Odyssey. I think two years later. Yeah. Which is crazy to think two years to make Space Odyssey. Yeah. That'd have been a hellish two years for anybody on that production. Yeah, really. <laughs> anybody and, else to get and it? Then no, came out, when did that come out then? 67? Space Odyssey? 68. 68, yeah, yeah, we hadn't made it yet. We hadn't made it to the moon yet. That's interesting. When 2001 came out. I always forget the context of that, the idea that a lot of space travel movies predate us ever doing it yeah it's so crazy to me because that was when the fascination was going on was the space right. race yeah that was being invented but it hadn't happened yet before making movies about that it that is the thing is like really want math and science as a, a, a focus in schools so to build the astronauts of tomorrow and it's like this big nationalistic like push like push, yeah. shoot for the stars literally and it's interesting to think about Star Wars coming in 77 10 years post because that it's two different sides of the same cultural fascination right you know because the pre-fascination was real smart people are right now making real technologies to put a man on the moon and so it was all this space walking and space stations and right. cultures on Mars and etc but then by the time that had been done and sort of fizzled away in terms of like the new frontier. Now it was, hey, space is cool. Let's right. add stuff to it, and well, we got lasers and swords and right. Moonraker. I mean, we got previous to like the fear, right? The fear of coming invaders coming down. Yeah, it's been kind of. I think yeah. horror was a, a big part of the sci-fi boom at that point. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Right. <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Right. Exactly. What was the it? Thing. The thing. Although that was much later. The thing from outer space. Yeah. The yeah. original. There we go. And then the idea of the um, 
was that automatons, like the the robot yeah, the invaders. Still? Yeah. Well, that there, there's another one I'm thinking of. There's a really cool poster. I can't remember what it's called. It's like Technus or something like that. I don't know. War of the Worlds. <laughs> yeah, that's even earlier, earlier. Yeah. Honestly, that's and super scary, right? Yeah. Like. And they became cool for stones. Well, I mean, I feel like is Flash Gordon, Flash Gordon serials yeah. would have predated. No, you're right. Space travel. Yeah, I mean, Star Wars is kind of like the amalgam of like the, the, the hero's journey in space. Sure. Right. It's just a refined a new setting for right. a fantasy story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We always but talk also, about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, like what I like about the you know the 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 difference with Star Wars that's that's right in our face but i feel like not that we forget of it but the it's you know a long time ago a galaxy far far away like this isn't our space this is someone else's space right, this, this right. is a group of people who have had this shit figured out for years right. and they're living normally in this environment you know right. and that's one of the things that you know the more the more i read like yeah like yeah like the star wars books and different parts of star wars it's like that's i think what i love about it is it's not it's it's not cool to them. It's normal to them. It's a lived-in you know? universe. Yeah, you know, right. and it's just oh, we need to go to that planet. Okay, get in your spaceship and go to that planet. You know, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. and Hans Beater the Falcon that he yeah, whacks right. on to make it run. Yeah, it's not this cool, sleek, shiny spaceship. Right. You know, and that was some of the appeal of Galactica too. Mm, yeah, that, I mean the Galactica in particular being an older model of Battlestar in the show. But that it's all much like Alien. It's this chunky, functional, you right. know, spits out computer paper, military tech. That's just it's it's there to serve its purpose of fighting a war, right? And not to be glamorous or cool. Right. There aren't windows on the spaceship. It's hunks of metal and big machines right. and things you strap into, you know, and big engines and guns. Did you say strap in or strap on? <laughs> it's interesting. You strap to think... in. I strap on. <laughs> <laughs> See, and it's interesting to think about the idea of. The, the horror aspects come from the interaction with the unknown, right? And when we think about Star Wars or Star Trek or Battlestar, it's the unknown is out there, but we're also out there. Yeah. We're encountering them on, un- on our term. uncharted territory. We're putting in a place where we're familiar with existing. Right, whereas yeah. when the invader comes, it's they're so far advanced, they got here from there, yeah. and we don't we know how to interact. We haven't even left our backyard. Right. Which, ironically, I feel like with you know many you know the way people see things nowadays i'm not i'm I'm surprised that there isn't more government focus on nasa being like you know there there are aliens out there you know and i guess maybe they're too focused on the quote-unquote aliens here to killjoy you a little which i've done a lot lately i feel like (laughs) nasa's been doing a lot even though it's not been in the news or glamorous Mm -hmm. They've done launch after launch after launch for like the past fifteen years. Oh, that's Usually cool. satellites and telescopes and information gathering stuff, mm-hmm. but like they're still very much a very active part of the government. Mm-hmm. It's not something that's trundling along and living on their past glories. Like yeah. still active. It just no. It's just boring stuff. Yeah. You it's know, it's probably manned. also yeah. Like yeah. once right. you land on the moon, it's like well, it's boring unmanned stuff. You know, yeah. What's the what's the ne- yeah? Until we like land on Mars with a human, right? Like, it's kind yeah. of you know we're not breaking a new boundary. Right. It's like that. The difficulty comes with backwards compatibility, right? Not only are we trying to go farther, right? We're trying to adapt tech from the '60s and update it to a point where it's working now and sending human. Because we can send robots up, no problem. We've mm-hmm. done that. We 
I mean, what was the Curiosity rover was supposed to last a week and ended up lasting nine years or something like that. It was forever. And yet, even though we haven't put, I I don't think we've put more surface rovers on Mars since then, we have like eight more satellites around the thing, you know? Oh, for sure. Some of which have optics that are so good that they're better than what Curiosity was sending us. And they're in orbit around Mm -hmm. Mars, you know, because we've got better camera technology since then. You know, taking taking the technology from the Blackbird planes and sticking it in their Mars satellites. It's interesting that we're not as focused because that was a huge like. Well, yeah, like that's our goal, I guess. Right. Is kind of my thing, like in, right. in, in the realm of not hearing about it because it's boring. Right. But what's also, the what's their goal of what yeah. they're doing? It's just yeah, we'll, we'll it, get some samples from learn it. more, right? Right. Is it, to, is it to at some point like colonize Mars? Is right. it? Are we still trying to reach farther and farther? Like. Is there, you know, is there, you know, I know it's a big science fit, but the whole faster than light travel, like, is that something that's still talked about? Or we just, just accepted that it's not possible and moved on from it, you know, like, is there, you know, (laughs) the jaunt. (laughs) That's the thing, like the, the national narrative of we got to beat Russia to space, we got to beat Russia to the moon is a huge motivating factor. And that's why it's in the common eyes. Like you're going to see every level of these tests from now until we get there. Yeah. And then when television was the thing that everybody had yeah, watched, right. and it was on every channel, right. there it was. It was right. a national identity. You know, now the internet is so big, you have to seek those things out. Right. Even when everyone at work is talking about it, I can't just turn on my computer and there it is, like right. with a TV. I have to turn on my computer and look for it. That's true. We're talking about space. <laughs> <laughs> the... With with Strange Love and I mean I guess Strange Love came out during the space race, yeah. But to do with non space race involved Cold War, there's so much technology going on there that was just immediately filed away into the cabinet of war making things mm-hmm. and just sort of not appreciated or pondered on in any meaningful way. You know, some of the technology in the B fifty two was crazy. You know, aerial refueling has become a, a almost routine Common you know, place, by that yeah. time, right? Even the the B twenty nines of World War Two, and I think this was during the war, but didn't quite get implemented fully before the war ended. Remote control networked turret systems with one guy in the middle of the aircraft turning his head and the guns pointing to where he's looking to bring as many to bear as possible where he's looking. In World War Two, wow, <laughs> you know and. It was also interesting to see the radar. Like, the yeah. 60 miles out, you saw the blip of the missile coming. Like, blip. that was pretty blip. impressive. Yeah. And there's all this other crazy tech that's just making war better. <laughs> you know, not, not better necessarily, but... Whereas when it was moon-focused, it was cool, it was neat, it was crazy. And a lot of the the moon technology was just repurposed from our ballistic missile technology. <laughs> It was, what if it didn't come back down, you know, but it's kept so going? It's so funny to think moon technology. It just sounded funny. Moon technology. Moon shoes. Now from Lunar Labs, <laughs> right. LLC. The space pen. The sp- <laughs> you can ride upside down. Take the pen, Jerry. Yeah. I love that episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I don't want the pen. Why'd you take it? He gave it to me. You do that voice really well. Thanks. Um, but, but yeah, it... it because in Doctor Strangelove, there is all this crazy technology going on between the radio systems and the codes and the plane and the radar and the big board and the self-destruct systems and the missiles. And, and it's just, it's, it's incidental. It's irrelevant. 
because it's just the business as usual of making Cold War. Right. In the same way that the the absurd nuclear destruction is sort of just the business as usual. And it's... It's the regrettable but inevitable end. And the rest, when he's on the phone and everything else and in the war room, it's just the truth that they're grappling with. But for Group Captain Mandrake, who's out there on the base, you know, when, when Ripper tells him, you know, Group R, he, his face changes. There's this, oh, it's not a test. Right. Ah, you know, and, and the reality is much more... It washes over him, you know. Whereas for everybody else, it's, well, okay, here, this is one of the things we were worried about. Great, let's stop it. <laughs> Off they go. When something becomes commonplace, it takes on a new a new nature. <laughs> See, there's another thing that adds to his performance in that space, is that he doesn't want to upset Ripper to the point of being violent with him yeah. or of offing himself. Yeah. And it's this, like, not threatening him, not torturing him, not trying... Like, that that was an interesting dynamic of trying to play the through line of, I need information from him, but I need him to give it to me freely yeah. without ex- escalating to a point where we're never going to get that information. Which is odd to be playing that and playing it slightly comedic. And that's the thing. In, in those scenes, Mandrake is not the funniest guy in the room. It's Ripper. Yeah. Ripper is making all of the jokes because he's About insane. His bodily fluids, right? Yeah, and and he gets his golf bag, and there's a light machine gun. Oh in. my god, that was so great! It reminded. Did you guys see the whitest kids you know sketch where it's like uh, business is war? <laughs> no. Oh, I'll, I'll have to show you. But it's like Trevor yeah. Moore and like a young intern. He's coming in. Is like get down. There's a sniper up there. They don't want this merger to go through. So <laughs> I need you to get that anti tank gun, and I need you to bring it over all here. Right, so I can, yeah. Johnson, you son of a bitch, you almost got me. We're going to sign these papers. Like, it was just really funny, like, direct link between those. But the idea of the golf bag, the idea of leisure, like... He pulls this light machine gun gun. out of it, which, despite the name, is it's the squad-level 30-caliber huge weapon typically on a tripod. Yeah, it's massive. You know, it's big. It was odd to see it without a tripod. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's just interesting that Sellers plays the straight man in those scenes. This comedy icon, like, and yeah. he does it really well. It's also really funny to me that with that mustache, he almost looks like Groucho Marx <laughs> as that character. That. That's really yeah. funny. Because his mustache as um, Inspector Clouseau is more thin, that French style. Yeah. This one's more of a bushy, and it looks just like Groucho Marx, which I thought was funny. Mm-hmm. So did you like it, Tim? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I, like I asked it. you actually. Did you <laughs> yeah. enjoy the film? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, was it off-putting? Um, because it kind of should be in a way. I mean, it's not off-putting only because I've become so desensitized. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll accept I mean, that answer. You know, because at this point, in, you know, it's something I, <clears throat> without going into too much detail, when my wife kind of starts freaking out about the state of the world, and I'll be like, you know, and I'm I'm significantly older than her. And it's like, look, like, I remember at every point when I was a kid, like, there was some threat. Maybe not as big as the Cold War, but there was always something, not to that degree, but there was always something looming, you know. And I mean, was, that's, even today you get the whole, what's what's the new nuclear threat right. in the world? What's right. the new but thing like, hanging over our heads? Yeah, but like, at this point in my life, I'm just like, but the world hasn't ended yet. So, you know, and it's that, you know, again, it's that threat, that fear of right. annihilation that supposedly, quote unquote, keeps things in check. 
So, and I think that at least the smart people realize that, you know, yeah, once you do pull the trigger, like none of it fucking matters anyway. So all of the people are just going to continue to just hold their finger on the trigger. And the only way you can kind of deal with it is be like, yeah, like their fingers on the trigger, but they haven't pulled the trigger yet. And it's been like how many decades since their fingers been on the trigger. Mm. So it's just kind of like, they're probably not going to pull it. And then if they do, we're probably not going to realize it because we'll be dead at that point anyway, you know? So it's just kind of like, that's kind of more where I've, where I've moved. And um, there's actually a book I read at one point too, because uh, as a, since I was a kid, I've kind of been obsessed with the end of the world. And uh, there's, there was a book I read that basically talked about part of the, the, the issue with, I forget if it was referring to just kind of people in general or societies, but but definitely with religions, because most religions have an end of days mythology yeah. built in. And the problem with that is that everybody's living kind of as if we are going to see the end of the world. And you're constantly focused on when the world is going to end. Mm-hmm. So we never bother taking the time to fix things as they are now, because it's like, well, what's the point if the world's going to end pretty soon? Right. And, and we definitely see that now with people who don't care about the environment, you know, and won't believe in, in global warming and climate change no, because it's just like, off. oh, it'll be, yeah. you know, it's, you know, and, and, you know, you kind of like, well, don't you care about, you know, maybe your grandkids might be around when it starts affecting things. Maybe you, you know. What's funny is you get the opposite in Dr. Strangelove because he spends all that time trying to be polite with the Soviet premier on the phone. That's not going to matter if the world blows up. Who cares who you offended? But they spend all their time sort of presuming that this isn't going to happen. Right. Because they know that if it happens, it doesn't matter. But if it doesn't happen, it does matter. So we need to be polite. And we need to say, well, well, I'm sorry too. Mm -hmm. No, it's okay. And we need to be worried about what secrets we do or don't share and what they do or don't tell us and what they're planning for for the future. Because to stop planning for the future, even as the bombers fly to their targets, is just not... They, they can't do it. It's not a, not a course of action they can mm-hmm. take. That that would have been to to them the true insanity, you know. Even though nuclear annihilation was minutes away during the film, mm-hmm. but then yeah, now there's the the sort of the opposite of this presumption that the point of no return has been passed, and they just sort mm-hmm. of give up. You get to get the opposite, basically the opposite effect. Well, not that the point of no return has necessarily passed. Are you I mean, talking I think about in the film, Scott? Like, like in terms of the, like it, it being inevitable or? No, I just, that it's a different, it's a, it's a reverse attitude of that even when faced with nuclear destruction as close as you could possibly get to it, there's always working towards the future. In the film. Oh, in the oh film. yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Because the only other opportunity is no future, but it's, it's sort of a Pascal's wager of sorts of like, if we don't plan and there's no future, oh well. If we don't plan and we somehow avert this nuclear disaster, we're screwed. But if we do plan and there's no future, oh well. But if we do plan and there's a future, we're all right. Like, the only true insanity mm-hmm. would be to stop planning for the future. Well, Even as of, the bombers approach their targets, mm-hmm. the only true insanity would be to give in. Well, it's almost kind of like a, a religious argument, too, where it's like, you know, if you live your life as if there is a god and there turns out there is a god that's good, what Pascal's go wager is yeah. yeah whereas if you live your life as if there is no god but there is then you're fucked you know right. so it's kind of like and I guess it's like yeah like where where you're willing to, to hedge your bets like do I have a miserable life just in case there's a god somewhere who's going to be pissed if I do anything that makes me happy you know at least I can quote unquote spend the rest of eternity in heaven or whatever you know and it's like like where you know what, what basket are you putting all your eggs in you know and 
And I think that's part of what they, nuclear eggs. what they, yeah, what they, yeah, what they try to rely on sometimes is that delicious irradiated know. breakfast. Right. But it's interesting the historical, like end of the world narrative. The idea, like I mean, with the plague, the Black Death, that must have felt like hell on earth, and like the end was coming, right? And the mm-hmm. idea of around the time of uh, Jesus emerging as a real person, like there was Messiah fever mm-hmm. in Judea, like all of the, like the idea of like. The end is coming. Yeah. We need to find the Messiah. <laughs> like, that's that's what uh, the Life of Brian movie, the Pythons did, is predicated oh, okay. on is the idea of Messiah fever. And they, <laughs> they picked the wrong, they, they backed the yeah. wrong horse in that. And it's interesting, like, that idea of, like, the world is always on the brink and hasn't tipped yet. Mm-hmm. And... But it will. Or, but this could be the thing. This could be the thing right. that does it. Right. Like, Y2K. And, you right. know, like... Like there, yeah, and that, that's sort of the thing is like I've, uh, or like you know twenty twenty yeah twenty twelve was like right. one of the, the next big you know so and that's sort of the thing is that there's always something that people seem to latch onto like no no this is going to be the end of the world and all you know all these books are written about it all this focus is given to it and all it does is sort of pull us away from kind of whatever it is we're we're doing as either individuals or society or whatever you know so that's sort of the thing is like you know don't don't live as if the world's about to end like live as if it's not going to end and you actually get to make something of your life like do that and focus on that you know and 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 yeah i think that's the thing is a lot of times that gets tied up with with spirituality and religion because it's this whole idea of like yeah well it's not about what you do in this life it's about what happens after this that matters so you've got a plan on that and you know sometimes like yeah like there are parallels to that sort of that impending doom kind of thing you know that that it's it's inevitable you know it's like well this yeah this is inevitable so we have to do it we have to stop it you know dying is inevitable and the afterlife is inevitable so we have to live you know and it's like you know but it you know again you yeah you don't end up sort of living for either your own choices or your own what what you want to make out of your life it's more just like well, this is what the next craze is and the next thing we have to be afraid of so you should be more afraid of this because we and, and not even that there's a solution you just you're supposed to be afraid you know mm. and so that's kind of what has gradually gotten turned off in me at least is the the fear i'm not saying i know for a fact it'll never happen but i'm saying like what what difference does it make for me to just be afraid about it you know mm-hmm. and 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 to watch another thing kind of come and go through all of this stuff you know and, um and, and, and that's always the thing too is that every new thing that happens like no no this is the new worst thing it's always worse than everything else that right. came before it's always a bigger deal it's always more you know and I just I get, I get tired of it you know so it's just kind of like you know it's 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 interesting to watch and that's the other part of it too is like if something like this were to actually, actually happen like we wouldn't know about it unless you know okay the bomb did drop and the world's going to be annihilated so by then it's too late anyway you know it's right. not like okay what can we do to stop it it's like yeah, the government wouldn't tell us, like, by the way, a bunch of bombers are about to blow up right. Russia, and if they do, we're all fucked, so run around and panic. It's like, no, like, only the people in that room and these, you know, few others around in these other places knew about it. So for all intents and purposes, And that's what gives happen. Peter Sellers' group captain the clue. When he turns the radio on, there's just music playing. Yeah. When like, Plan R was designed to be a retaliation strike after the Soviets struck first, right. he's like, there's no way they'd just be playing music here. Yeah. We'll be talking we about... Have some kind of update. Yeah. What's going on? And that's... What was it? What's so terrifying about this idea is that, okay, one kook pulled the trigger, but there was a whole bunch of things that contributed to us being unable to unpull that trigger like 
it just happens. Bunch of people just following orders. Well, yeah, but it's the <laughs> idea that this one plane that almost got killed by a missile knocked out their radio, so right. there's no Any way to make that transition. Any solutions for that plane, if they'd been implemented on their own, would have been fine. Right. But piled all together impeded each other. And then, like, the bomb bay doors don't open, but you could go in and do it manually. But fixes it. Oh. And it's like, they're headed for this one place, but they're out of fuel, and they go to this other one. Like, there's just so... That's what's and scary that's about it. That's where the real fear like, comes from, right? That all these people acting rationally with the best course of action available to them, with all the information available to them. Because remember, the bomber crew has just been told, right. Washington's been nuked, this is our retaliation plan. That they do what... What or the only thing there is to do in that situation. Right. The only thing there is to do after the missile blows them up, after they lose their fuel. Again, they do the most rational thing. And it leads to destruction. It's also odd remembering this from the first time I watched. I had assumed that Slim Pickens' character, which is so silly to be saying, but I thought of him as this bizarre caricature, like he was really gung-ho war. But he's really not. The only no. thing that's ridiculous about him is his cowboy hat, and he rides the bomb down. Mm -hmm. But when he's acting in that role, as he's very, he's by the book, he's not ridiculous. Yeah. Like, he, he just yeah. is kind of straight ahead. The only thing that gives that character any kind of, like, weirdness is his cowboy hat. And it's almost yeah. like it's there just as a foreshadow of him right. riding the bomb <laughs> yeah. like a horse, you know? Like, yeah. And it's, you know, I'm not very good at making speeches. I don't know, must be... Some, some stuff running through your heads about people back home about what has happened to for us to have to do this plan but right. I'm going to do it I'm going to do it well that's his, his his solemn vow to yeah. his crew at the beginning of that run oh. <laughs> you're right we think of him as a caricature character but he's he's not the most not serious character in the right. film he's not even the closest to the most wacky no like that's Ripper like <laughs> or Strangelove yeah depending right, right. It, yeah oh God, just such a such a tightly put together film. Do you think if they did like a French remake of that film, that character would keep a beret in a safe? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm sure they have their own, you know, hke stereotype. Right? Well, I mean, the whole like he's a cowboy, right? That's yeah. that's yeah. the joke. Well, so the, but I mean, if you had to yeah. pick one hat that that represents America, it would be the cowboy hat. <laughs> right. You know, for better or for worse, <laughs> that is the symbol of America in a hat. In the sixties, certainly, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess you could argue that it's a baseball cap. See, but which baseball team would you? Pick? Every foreigner on Earth it would be a baseball cap. That's how they pick us out. That baseball caps are such a common everyday item for Americans, but they're not in other countries that if the hat is a common item it's not a baseball cap shape but that's one of the ways they pick us out as tourists is baseball caps so they don't wear I thought they had baseball in other countries I mean Japan Cuba a handful of other places Canada really not but that's really kind of else. it I mean it, I guess it exists but it's not a thing yeah. even and then like cricket I think modern it's more like street clothes it's just that it's so common for us you know in the I guess it's like, a, it's like an are. archetype Right. You know, like mm -hmm. like he didn't take a baseball cap out and be like, oh yeah, like and I mean maybe that's it. Like and that was the thing is like I didn't necessarily think him as being portrayed as a hick because he had a cowboy hat. No, right. It was right. like the cowboy and like you know it's that's mm -hmm. the 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 for lack of a better term rustic American mm -hmm. you know as opposed to a businessman American who works in New York right. and wears a three piece suit. Like you know it's like 
the the pioneer you know the ones who kind Westward of word expansion yeah you know yeah. Like yeah. that's sort of like as, as a symbol back. of that you know like um you know like i don't know like i mean i i mean i definitely see baseball caps on characters in other films but they don't stand out maybe and maybe again it's it has more to do with as an american watching a film versus someone from another country watching a film like they may notice all the baseball caps but i don't because they're more common but i notice a cowboy hat because right. it's being right, exactly. presented as a, as a as an item you know right exactly um, but yeah i'm I, i'm glad you liked it Tim. it's it's despite its ridiculousness it's a more subtle film in so many ways because it's everything the comedy comes from the intersection of so many things that aren't funny right and then so much there's a good chunk of it that's historical too i mean we've been fortunate enough in our lifetimes to not have the looming threat of nuclear annihilation over our heads as, as imminently as it was during say the human missile crisis or other points in, in world history and it's nice that there's enough of a you know it takes a certain historical knowledge of the cold war to pick up on some of the threads that come together in this film um so which i'm the, glad we all have so when did the cold war end 97 is what Wikipedia says. Okay. Because yeah, I, I definitely remember, like, as a kid, like, and I could, that was the thing is I couldn't remember if it was, like, was I just learning about it in history, but, like, I definitely remember It's a combination a of visceral, German like, reunification, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the cooling of tensions with communist China. Taking down the Berlin Wall was kind of a big step. Yeah. yeah. Like, I remember when that, I remember that happened. You know, I remember, yeah. That, that all come together to sort of finally conclude the last the last thing we were concerned about during the cold war you know right. now that they're all all done right. <laughs> thus ends the cold war <laughs> but yeah I just, i'm glad y'all i'm glad y'all liked it no it's sure. definitely worth the watch i would definitely recommend it it's, it's mm. an interesting study it's, in satire. it's both fun and cinematically important mm. which yeah. is a nice a nice meaning of those two areas because we talked before about some films that are important to the history of film, but like are just nowadays are just boring to watch. Can be, right. you know. I feel like Doctor Strange Love isn't, but it's quite nice. So, <laughs> yeah. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. So now it's spot time for my favorite segment. It is. It is time for <laughs> another situational movie recommendation. <laughs> So this one is a bit of a strange situational movie recommendation. I was curious to see... A strange love, even? A strange love. <laughs> a strange love recommendation? <laughs> I, we always have this debate about like the MCU versus the DCEU, or the DC Worlds, sure. whatever they're calling it. I would be interested to hear how you would have chosen a DC character and a director to start a new extended universe for DC, moving towards a Justice League-type film franchise. Hmm. And I will start it off, because this one's kind of complicated and weird. Sure. I thought it would be really cool to do a really solid Superman film headed by Steven Spielberg. I was going to say Steven Spielberg, actually, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, you yeah. can't now, because I took it. <laughs> yeah. So just the idea of like someone who really understands nostalgia and somebody who's really good at giving those heartfelt, big scopes, but doesn't lose the humanity of that those yeah. figures. I think that would be a great way 
to have Steven in space and like having a Superman film. But especially film. as someone who can lay the groundwork for something larger. Exactly. Without compromising the plot of the film we're watching. Exactly. And I mean, I, ideally it would be a Spielberg of a cer- certain era, but I think he could still pull it out now. Mm-hmm. But the idea of having well, yeah, I a mean, really solid Ready Superman. Ready Player One was really fun. Which one? Ready Player One. Right. His most recent movie was yeah. just really darn fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that would have been a really interesting way to start, and you kind of, with the nostalgic, and the nostalgia and the tone that Steven seems to set in his films, there's always this sense of hope, and that's something that there's not too much of in Man of Steel as a start to a thing, and it was adapted to be a start of a thing for the DCEU, but I think it would, coming out of a Steven Spielberg-run Superman film, it'd be like, I am really excited for the way this universe looks and how it would go forward. So, that's my... This is a more of a hypothetical movie oh, recommendation. I, yeah, that's perfectly fair. We've done those before. Yeah. Usually at my... By my question. <laughs> yeah. I would have said yeah. Spielberg as well, but you kind of hit the nail on the head, so I'll, I'll come up with something. <laughs> okay, because I've already thought about this. Go for it. A friend of mine asked me this, like, months ago. He was like, basically, like, if you were put in charge of DC, what would you do? Mm-hmm. So... Um, my thing is I would actually do like a, I mean, whatever you want to call it, whether it's Crisis on Infinite Earths or Infinite Crisis, um, but it would be sort of uh, probably Jeff Loeb and Jeff Johns would have to be in control so just to kind of make sure that it's done, you know, in line with, with DC stuff um, so that it's actual like, you know, and uh, actually, well, Jeff Loeb more like overseeing Jeff Johns, like I would love if he wrote the script. And then directed by Joss Whedon. And basically what it would be is they would just fucking scrounge up all of their DC characters from every show that they've had. Everyone they can fucking grab. And put it in one thing where just like on the Crisis on Infinite Earths where it acknowledges there are these multiple versions of Earth with these different heroes. So you would have like the Smallville universe and like the, you know, as many actors and actresses who are still alive from like the original Superman movies, you know, the Christopher Reeve movies and as many of the Batmans that we can get together and even do it in a way. And I, there was a comic I read that was, um, I think it was written by George Perez where it was like Marvel and DC and like their two universes combined but what was really cool is like even within that like the different versions of the characters kept like shifting so like you would see the characters in their different costumes mm. and like slightly different personnel like it went from like for for example i think green lantern uh, green arrow at one point had his little stupid goatee and the little mask and the hat but then at one point he had the hood and he kept like shifting between versions of himself so to kind of have that where you have this one batman that's from the um Tim Burton slash Schumacher. Schumacher, but it keeps morphing. It's that one guy, but it keeps morphing between like Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, and George Clooney. But it's still, you know, because it's still like within that Batman, that one Batman universe, there were multiple people playing him. Right. So he's going through this crisis. But then there's a different character who actually is the uh, um, Ben Affleck Batman and the Christian Bale Batman. Like they're all there. And you know, had Adam West still be alive, was alive, he would also be in. It. You know, maybe get Brett Ward in if he's is he still alive? Bert, yeah. Brett Ward, yeah. So, so he like wouldn't have existed yet, I guess, because you would have taken over before he came on board. Would you, he's like, saying if it was before. I thought it was saying now. What oh, I was I mean, saying is like if you were going to start a new one. Yeah. What oh. you're doing is like I'm coming. taking all of the right. pieces that have already been laid out, so yeah, I'm smashing them together, and being like, you're going to have this big crisis. 
See, I'm and a bunch of you are going to die. Standing in the Dark Knight trilogy has concluded, and what's my Man of Steel going to be? That's how I approach. I, I'm interested to hear the end no, of this. Yeah, though. please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like, yeah, you have this, and it could be same sort of thing where, and they kind of did this with like the 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 Flarrowverse where they had a, I think it was Crisis on Multiple Earths or Infinite right. Earths, but it was still only within that universe. Like it, it's not like it referenced the films and brought. Right. I mean, it did bring in the 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 Barry Allen Flash, or I, I don't know if he was Barry Allen, but the um, John Wesley Ship as the Flash, not as Jay Garrick Flash, you know, gotcha. but the Barry Allen Flash. Like, they referenced him in that costume. So they kind of did a little bit of that with that part of it, but this DC Cinematic Universe was still a different thing. So all of that would get brought in. And basically, I would be, I would kind of handpick, like, these are all my favorite versions of these characters. These are who get to survive. So you would have the Tom Welling, Clark Kent Superman, but the Green Arrow from that universe would die, and you'd be left with the Stephen Amell Green Arrow because I like him way better. And um, the fucking uh, what's his face from the the, the Flash from the movies? Like he's fine, but no way Ezra near Miller. as good as the the yeah Ezra Miller. He's he's fine. He's good. It's not a, a criticism of of his, but but Grant Gustin. I feel like like we've lived with him for for years. You know, we've had him for years of television. Like, he's a way more established Flash. Mm-hmm. So so he gets to survive. And I, I personally like him better. So he would survive. Ezra Miller, you know, he'd get to go out. And, and, you know, maybe he would be the one stuck in the speed force. So he'd be gone or something. So there would be this huge crisis. And part of it, you know, what was also really fun in the... I think it was Infinite Crisis, where there ended up being, like, multiple Lex Luthers. And I think some of them teamed up, but some of them didn't. And okay. that's that and the other thing. So you'd have this, you'd have all of the Lex Luthers would also make a super team. So you would have the Jesse Eisenberg Lex Luthor. You'd have the Gene, is Gene Hackman still alive or did he die recently? No, he's, he's okay. still alive. So you'd have the Gene Hackman Lex Luthor. You'd have the uh, Michael Rosenbaum Lex Luthor. You'd have the, I mean, we could bring in Kevin Spacey and kill him off relatively quickly. <laughs> or he could be the one, because actually in Infinite Crisis, there's this whole thing where um, when one of the versions of Lex Luthor like, plans this whole thing, he doesn't involve the Joker because he's too much of a wild card. Right. And at the end, like, the Joker kills him. And he's like, you know, and someone's like, you know, you know, oh, you, you didn't let the Joker play. So, like, of course, <laughs> he's going to murder you. Right. So that could be the Kevin Spacey Lex Luthor. He gets off that way. Um, so basically, it would be my way of saying, like, these are all my favorite parts of all the different DC universes. And we have this, this crisis where, you know, there are multiple realities and there's this threat that's affecting all of reality that's kind of coming in. And by the end of it, you know, and it may settle back into this is the DC stuff that's on TV. This is the DC stuff that's in the movies, but they're part of the same universe now. And we've kind of picked through all and only kept all of the strongest stuff, you know, like um, and maybe even. Oh, that was the other part I was thinking, too, is that this was one of my little my little twists that I liked is that the the kid from Gotham, like he ends up being the only Batman left over. Gotcha. So it leaves room for a Batman who will grow up will grow up with not okay we end up with ben affleck who doesn't want to do it anymore and was good i liked his batman but like where does he go from here as opposed to like we're we're left with a young batman and it's like where's he gonna go is he gonna become super paranoid this is also a batman that knows that there are all these multiple realities and had to watch other versions of himself and the mistakes that they made as they grew up and became adult batman like what is he gonna do different now that he's seen all of that as a child you know what is he gonna learn from that I think that would make a really intriguing Batman. Uh, like I said, Tom Welling would be our Superman. Like I'm so pissed I never got to see him go from flame. after that. You know, you see that little brief in the 
Which even looked like it was like digitally put on. I don't right. even know that he was wearing the suit. Um, but yeah, to just to create a a best of DC universe that um, you know, and that's that's sort of what the Justice League can be too. It's kind of picked and chosen. Um, I'll probably still keep the Jason Momoa's Aquaman. You know, the, the, the you know DC cinematic universe Wonder Woman like um, I feel like there is a lot of good stuff in there. And like in the characters, like I do really like a lot of it, but I think my my main thing is like, yeah, like when they oh we need a new Flash, we need a new this, we need a new that. I'd also find a way to do a good Green Lantern because that's actually my favorite character in the DC universe, <laughs> and I don't I didn't hate everything about the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie, but there were definitely bad things. So and that's again part of why I would bring Jeff Johns on, where it's like okay, like, you have to make this Green Lantern be done right so that people won't think Green Lantern is a joke. You have, right. to, you have to fix what other people fucked up. But I would also have Ryan Reynolds as Green Lantern, just, you know, partially for, like, comic relief, too. Like, have yeah. him kind of making jokes He's about it. He's a great it. Hal Jordan, though. He, he is. He That's the is. thing. Like, that you was know? the thing. Is like, And maybe, maybe part of it is more just retconning the, the origin and the stuff that took place in that. But, like, if we, t- if we pluck out that Hal Jordan and put him in this new universe... Maybe it's fine. We can kind of forget about how the Green Lantern Corps worked from his universe, and now you've been inducted into the Green Lantern of this new universe, which mm-hmm. is different, which has a different history and mythology, and we can kind of start over with him in this new one. So, yeah, so I like that idea. Like, I don't think we need to change Ryan Reynolds as Green Lantern. We just need to fix what was wrong in the movie, but still it's a way of taking over all the good parts and cleaning away all the, the garbage. So, um, follow-up, what would be the movie that follows Crisis on Infinite Earths. Like, if, you, um, if it's rebuilt, right? Mm-hmm. You have the DCEU rebuilt in Tim's image. Yes. <laughs> what What is the film that starts the next wave of those, that franchise? Um, I mean, that's, that's true, because that is kind of like the climax of everything that has happened right. up until now. Um, it would probably just be like... Um, well, because we already had a Justice League movie. I'd maybe call it, like, Justice League Zero or something like that. Or, like, Year Zero? Like Yeah. Gotcha. Like, something where it's, like, this the is... Justice League of America? Justice Society of America? Yeah. The Super Friends? <laughs> you know, yeah, something along the lines of that to show that, like, this is... It's this group of people that we, we went through this whole ordeal to establish... But now this is going to be kind of the ongoing status quo. So yeah, I guess some, and that's the thing is like because we've already had a Justice League movie, yeah, maybe we'd have to be Justice League of America to kind of like you know we have Spider Man, then we have ama- the Amazing Spider Man, right. you know. So as a way to kind of separate it, Distance it's not it. a sequel to that one; it's the first one after this culminate. You know, kind of like what I assume is going to happen after Avengers Endgame. Like I assume that at some point they're going to have another Avengers movie. But it's going to be the beginning of a new Avengers right. thing, as whereas this is the end of the current era of Avengers. Um, so, or like you know something like uh, what the hell was it? There was something where it was like, what was it like Avengers? Then they have like Avengers World at one point, and then there's like Avengers Universe, like that type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's almost maybe like that, like Justice League of the Universe, as opposed to Justice League of America, like that it's right. gone universal instead of just being like, oh, we're just here to protect the country, you know, something along those lines, like to have it be a springboard. Um, 
so that you know in part of and this is also why i would want joss whedon to be handling it too because having this idea of all of these different characters who in in sort of the the um infinite crisis or crisis on infinite earth whatever i mean and that's the thing is it would be different from both of those stories but it would take elements of both of those so it could kind of like with age of ultron right it wasn't actually an adaptation of the age of ultron story from the comics right. it was that concept that they took over so a way to sort of like you know deal with how all these people are, are bickering you know i mean you have a room full of batman of course each one of them is going to think the other one's an imp imposter and that the, you know what they're doing should be what's done and you know so they've had to kind of deal with all that at the end of the and kind of make it through this crisis but now you've got this team of all people who were friends with alternate versions of who is now on a team with them and i, mean, I think that's kind of why i like justice league zero where it's kind of like the movie starts with like okay we have this new beginning but we're not it's not it's not part one it's like it's the the preamble to this like how do we work together as a team and you know um kind of almost how, like how batman versus superman was the dawn of justice it was the first time these three people came mm -hmm. together but it wasn't until the next movie where you finally got the justice league so it'd kind of be like yeah like like a, a justice league zero where it's like this is the aftermath and almost like it's a sequel to the, the crisis movie before we actually get to justice league one which is the start of like them working as a team together kind of thing gotcha so um i don't know what the threat would be i mean it would be cool to kind of bring in at some point i would also love to see the war of light going into uh blackest night storyline as a film but that's just also so huge so i mean i almost wonder if like you'd have to just kind of like pepper in hints of that like this is there looming in the universe you know um and i also don't know if that would be a reason to cause all of these multiple realities to like intertwine into one earth um but or justice league new earth that would be because i think that's what they call it when all like the 52 versions of earth are all crammed into one earth i think they call it new earth instead of like earth 52 earth right. whatever it was like new earth um so anyway that's what i would want to do um and then you know and then that's where you can have okay these are the characters who are in the movies these are the characters who go and have their tv shows so some of the tv shows would still there some maybe wouldn't be um but then there's also a chance where maybe secondary characters from the films might show up kind of like what they did at the beginning with agents of shield and avengers right where they had like lady sif showed up on agents of shield you know so you could maybe have some characters from the movies in the tv and vice versa and you know and then i feel like you just have this whole thing where you have all these characters who have to deal with is this my world is it not my world some things are like my world some things aren't and you know yeah like i said like you know the um you know the well, i guess in a lot of in both in i don't think in smallville we ever saw batman and i don't think in gotham we've ever seen superman so like kind of having this relationship between like this young bruce wayne and tom welling kind of like how they would interact like oh yeah cosmically superman and batman are supposed to be this yin and yang but we didn't grow up kind of to, in the same situation and mm -hmm. we're kind of separated by age it's a much different dynamic you know i feel like like superman and batman both kind of established themselves on their own and then they're kind of equals where it's like well you're a young batman and i've been you know i i went through my whole television series where i went from being clark kent to becoming superman after 10 years mm -hmm. and i've been superman for a while um so i think that would be interesting to explore because it would be different than any other way we've seen superman and batman interact with each other um and then you could have like a superman batman movie where it's like okay these two characters were established somewhere else now we can follow their journey and kind of understand that and you could have like 
you know um, yeah any 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 other combination but it's but it's built from that sort of best of universe still haven't thought of what the threat would be though it'd have to be yeah it'd be something run by like all the Lex Luthers because I feel like you know if, if Superman's supposed to be like the shining beacon of the DC heroes I feel like Lex Luthor in a lot of senses has to be but then again there's probably the same duality between Lex Luthor and Joker so right. maybe that would be part of it too is you'd have like a bunch of Jokers and a bunch oh, you of could do Emperor Jim. that was that, that actually yeah that's cool so so actually the main villain is Mr. Mixopilic and he's the one who gave Joker the power of a god to Mixus recreate Mixopilic Mixopilic Okay, whatever he says. his eyes. It's wrong. I, no, I don't, don't think you're supposed to be able to pronounce it as part of the no, point because there are too many consonants. Rumpelstiltskin. His yeah. name is Rumpelstiltskin. That's <laughs> fine. Uh, Isn't there a Z in there too? Somewhere. It's silent. It's silent. Oh, okay. That's good. I'm so sorry. Oh, well. But anyway. All right, Scott. I, well, so in my case, we're talking post Dark Knight trilogy. Right. What do I make instead of Man of Steel? Which I still, I, I swear, when I when they were making Man of Steel, it was just gonna be, hey, Snyder wants to make a Superman. No, film. I I totally agree. And then like after he made it, they were like, let's turn this into the yep. first of our films, right. and he was like, what? Uh-huh. Shrug. Whatever. Exactly. So not necessarily making my Man of Steel, but making it with the future vision to know that it's gonna be. <laughs> anyway, I'm sticking I'm sticking with Superman, because you gotta DC's big three are Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and it's gotta be them, but it can't be Batman. Because we just had the Dark Knight trilogy. And I think that was one of the best things about Batman v Superman, was that Batman was just there as a character. Because they know you saw the Dark Knight movies. We got a little reminder in the opening credits, here's the gun, here's the alleyway, remember his parents' dead. Great, alright, you know what's going on with Batman. Great, so we're not going to do another whole film about him. Can't be him. And it can't be Wonder Woman, because she... We need to have an established sort of regular Earth for DC first, that Wonder Woman is used to introduce us to Themyscira and then bring her into that main world. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, that has to be her journey, and that deserves its own film, but we have to have had a film before that to facilitate that transition. Mm -hmm. So, Superman. So, we're sticking with him. Who's directing? I have three directors for you. <laughs> All at the same time. Well, no, I just... I didn't tell you what the plot of my Superman movie I was. I don't have I'll a plot for mine, so don't worry about it. Um, I Ryan Johnson, maybe? I just, between his, Fuck and yes. not just, I mean, okay, he did Last Jedi, great, go ahead, get your yelling out, we'll wait, you're done, great, alright. Stop fanboying. Um, Looper was brilliant in introducing us to a world with different normals and different rules, but then focusing on a story about the people in it, and mm -hmm. as how it happened to them and their development. And I just, I think a similar tone would work well for our first Superman film. Um, I... Mostly more because I'm curious. I, I have a gut feeling here. I don't have anything to build it on. Ron Howard. I'd love to see Ron Howard do do this. Yeah. I loved what he did with Solo. And I loved his his sort of almost Kansas alien interruption in Cocoon. In this otherwise normal world with yeah. a, an alien factor introduced to it. Uh -huh. I think that would serve Superman very well. His alienness. That focus. And then just that, in, in general, just the other work he's done, he knows how to how to not lose sight of the bigger picture and the grand stage while keeping the film about the people and what's happening to him. Mm. Between things like Rush and, and um, Apollo uh, 13. 13, you know. And, which I, I just, I get a feeling that would serve Superman well. 
So I'd, I'd like to see that. And then in a similar vein for interest, Catherine Bigelow, uh, who did Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Gotcha. Did she do Zero Dark Thirty? Now I'm second guessing myself. I think it's somebody else who did uh, Zero Dark mean, Thirty. Actually, let me look that up because if I'm thinking about Zero Dark Thirty in particular, mm -hmm. to be frank, um, so whoever whoever did that, um, and we'll just have a small cut here while I'm umming and <laughs> phoning and. Then, no, yeah, she had, yeah, she had okay. Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow. Great, I remember things. Um, because that was, the focus was this one character as they, their role in a larger machine that sort of, the whole thing was driven by that one character. And I think as an introduction for Superman, that's great. Mm -hmm. Because he starts off as one, one piece of the puzzle and then emerges at the end of the film, ideally, as... The, the pillar that Superman is. Hmm. That at the beginning, he's got to be one smaller actor in something greater, you know? Gotcha. And in that sense, the focus of Zero Dark Thirty was brilliant for that. Hmm. Um, I much... As a sort of... sort Like I said, Ron Howard's films are great at keeping sight of the big picture, globally and historically and publicly, while focusing on the, interaction, the interpersonal re interactions. Her film was great at keeping sight of the big picture plot-wise, while doing it all through the lens of our one character who emerges onto this larger stage. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'd, that'd be great for a, for a fledgling Superman, you know? I, I'd appreciate that a lot. Nice. So yeah, there you go. That was fun. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> Thank you. I like the hypotheticals. <laughs> so yeah, that's thank, great, great question, great movie. Uh, Great discussion. Flowed pretty well this time, you know. Didn't feel like I had to nudge it along very much. No, which sometimes happens, but not this time. Mm. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed it, listeners, and uh, we hope that you'll be back with us next month, episode 21, where Tim will be picking. Yeah. And he'll be picking. Serenity, which, to avoid any confusion, it's not the pilot two part or hour and a half part, however you, you've viewed it, it's been released, you've seen it on DVD, whatever. Uh, of the Firefly TV show, it's the movie that came after the Firefly t show, t TV show ended years after, and um, which was, you know, I think meant to to both serve as a continuation of the Firefly story, but also be a self-contained thing, so that if this was your first introduction to that universe, you kind of weren't going to be completely lost, or no more lost than you would be. I, I feel like I always have to remind people because I feel like people have seen it. And you're like, well, I didn't know who this person was. It's like, how many other movies do you watch where before the credits roll, you know who all the characters are? You learn about the characters as you're watching them and you're introduced to them. And there's hints of backstory and this, that, the other thing. So, you know, my recommendation to anyone watching this, if you're just going to watch the movie, is don't expect that, like, you're going to be completely in the know the whole time but it's not just because you haven't watched the series it's because that's sometimes how movies work you know <laughs> so my question to you is I know you've seen all of Firefly mm -hmm. I forget how much you've seen Joel half an episode I've seen about half the series mm -hmm. do you want either of us to finish before we watch or do you want to keep us with that fresh perspective on the film so yeah you so can this be is, our expert <laughs> so this is well this is you know and I've kind of thought about this and I think we've, we've talked about it a little bit before is um, part of me is interested in interested in seeing you know people who haven't who've seen varying degrees of the show to just mm -hmm. go into the movie not totally cold as if you've seen none of it, um, 
and and also because it's you know it is one of those things where I do try to get people who have never seen it to watch it and I'm constantly trying to adjust how to approach that because one of the things I will admit to anyone who hasn't seen anything Firefly the getting through the pilot is a slog like every time I rewatch it I'm just like tempted to just skip it because it's like I know how this story starts like this this one isn't fun but you know it is introducing a lot of the characters bringing all the characters together getting some backstory also having a, an outside conflict so there is an actual like plot that kind of is going through not just here's a crew of people when they finally came together the end like there is a conflict that actually comes in there too um but it is a little more difficult to watch you've got to get through a few episodes to really get to the flow like with anything i mean you know i've talked about this with john too is that so many people are critical of things like right off the bat um i think he was saying specifically with like the the star trek series is usually it takes two seasons before you get it finds its 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 flow and its rhythm and you're like wow yeah by season three it's really good you know um so it's kind of like that with this but it's only a few episodes you have to get through and i think the next episode after the pilot was the train job which i think scott you were the one who used the phrase this is what this show is going to be like or something yeah. along those lines which happens know? a lot with in in my experience with almost every anime i've ever watched that the first at least two episodes, sometimes more, mm. are world set up and character background and yada right. yada. Mm-hmm. And episode four is usually the latest. Sometimes it's three, but mm-hmm. three or four is when you finally get the this is what this show is going to be episode of this is your typical episode. Mm-hmm. This is what I can expect when right. I sit down every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Train Job was that for me for yeah. Firefly. And Train Job also sets something up without giving too many spoilers away is there if yeah, um, the, there are characters in that who they Renege on a deal with basically, mm-hmm. who just are gone at the end of the episode as they made their escape and oh well. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I wonder if we're going to see these characters again. Right. <laughs> Much Which... like, it just to I know this is beat to death, but it gives me the Han Solo vibe of you know how many how many people out there in the galaxy want a piece of Malcolm. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And then we just see another person get mm-hmm. created. <laughs> and that's exactly it. Because usually I tell people like one of my favorite episodes is uh is called War Stories. It's one of the later episodes. But that is the episode that is a continuation of the train job. So if you watch just war stories, you're going to be like, well, who's this guy? Why is he so mad at Malcolm Reynolds? And you know, So there is that sense of you know, if you go into that one, you're kind of missing the significance by not watching the train job. But if you go into it knowing that, like, okay, when I see this guy, he's a guy who pissed off Malcolm Reynolds. However, the reason why he pissed off Malcolm Reynolds is, is very... Um, very important to the development of the of Mal's character, you know, um, you know, like similar, like you said with Han Solo, like you get this sense like Jabba's pissed at him, mm-hmm. but you never really learn why, as far as I've yeah. I've known. He's just like, that character. Yeah, right? it's just kind of like, well, yeah. you dumped your cargo. It's like, well, what was the cargo? What was the deal? Why, you know, y- you're gonna you find know. out if yeah. you continue your book. <laughs> oh, okay, so there you go. <laughs> Once you get to Rebel Dawn, you gotcha. It like ends right before the cantina scene where he meets Obi Wan Kenobi and Luke. Oh, okay. So that you'll you'll know. Like I know. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 kind of giving that disclaimer that if you if you aren't necessarily going to be like caught off guard by the fact that this guy is coming at him with a vengeance, and you'll just accept like, okay, that was in an earlier episode, then you can watch War Stories. If you're only going to watch one episode, I recommend watching Out of Gas because um, it's a great episode. It, 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 there's a lot of peril. But it also is a really good way for you to get to know the crew on the ship. Um, so that's sort of a, a really good part of it, at least so that when you see the characters in Serenity, you're like, oh, yeah, I know who all these people are. Um, 
but uh, if if anybody wants to, like, it'd be cool to watch the whole series if you've never seen it, like, leading into Serenity. But again, like, there, I want to see what the to what degree, if you just watch Serenity cold, you're going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, that was a great movie. Like, I don't, I don't care that I didn't see the series. Or even better, it makes me want to go back and rewatch the series and then watch Serenity again. That's that's, I guess, more my hope is not to scare people off by saying like, yeah, you have to watch a bunch of the show and then you don't really like it. Whereas if you come in cold to the movie and it really turns you onto that universe and wants you to make you makes you want to engage with it, that would be really cool. Um, but but yeah, you definitely um, and it does pay, take place a while after the show ends, so there is some you know there are some things that even for people who watch the show, like when the movie starts, like well where's this guy? Where's this? Why why is this like this? You know like you're kind of also questioning things too because so much has happened but since the show ended. So that's also something to keep in mind too is that you know when when we've seen the show and we watch the film it's like we have to wait for answers too to, to questions that we have based on stuff that we know so gotcha yeah. sounds good sounds good we're looking forward to it yeah me too we hope you two are you are as well listeners and uh, i hope you'll join us next month until then thank you for listening and uh, goodbye bye bye hey listeners we appreciate you tuning in for our podcast we're now available on iTunes if you'd like to check us out there. We'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official Nerds That Geek emails, which you can find on the bio page at nerdsthatgeek.com. Or if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at Scott underscore W underscore Murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Joel T18. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard. And on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more.